Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. We have been working through uh, 1 Peter, uh, and um, in God's providence, we came to this section of 1 Peter uh, at the very beginning of Advent, the section of 1 Peter uh, that begins with Peter telling us that the end of all things is at hand. It is a way of expressing that you and I live between the two advents of Jesus Christ, that we live in this final stage of God's redemptive program, and that the only thing that God's people have to look forward to at this point is the return of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for God to accomplish more stuff. There's not anything that's been left undone. The the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, all the promises of God have become yes and amen. What we are waiting for is for our king to return. And this time, his coming will not be in humility. His coming will be in glory and in dominion. And so we as the church of God living at the end of all things, we live between these two advents of Christ where the entirety of our discipleship and our devotion to God is marked by celebrating the first advent and anticipating the second. Well, this morning we come to 1 Peter. Uh, I'm going to read chapter uh, 5, verses 5 through 11. The title of the sermon this morning is The Humility of the Advent Embodied in a Waiting People. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Being sober-minded, being watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. A word that has come to us in inscripturated form. As you have caused this writing to take place, and as you have protected this writing throughout the generations. Because it is in this writing, and it is through this writing, that you speak to us and you give yourself to us anew every time we approach it by faith. But you have also given to us your word enfleshed in humanity, 
in giving us your Son, Jesus Christ. And so give us the faith this morning, O God, that Paul tells us is necessary to be able to hear the word of Christ spoken through the words of Scripture. Take this seed, O God, this morning that is planted in weakness and in humility and cause it to give forth a harvest of righteousness a thousandfold in your people as we wait and as we anticipate the coming of our Savior and as we do so, clothing ourselves in his humility while we wait. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There are so many themes that are part of Advent. The theme that I have attempted for, to help us focus on this Advent is a theme that has been running through uh, these passages from Peter that we have been looking at here at the end of 1 Peter 4 and here at the beginning of 1 Peter 5. And that is that central characteristic of humility. If there is any greater, more paramount characteristic that we think of when we think of the first advent of Jesus Christ, when we think of the God of all eternity choosing to come to earth and take upon himself flesh, is there any greater act of humility? Well, actually there is. Because he came not only to take on flesh, he came and he took on our sin. And what the Apostle Paul tells us is that he came in flesh and being humbled as a servant, even to the point of death. You see, this is what we are remembering. This is what we are celebrating that our God, who was eternal, who was perfectly complete within himself, who perfectly embodied all of what glory could even mean, took on flesh. As I reminded you last year, and I'm sure every one of you remembers this, but in my candidating sermon last Advent, I reminded you of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had learned when he was in prison and what gave him hope to remain faithful to Christ as he suffered in prison where he was going to be separated from his uh, fiance and not able to see her where he would later then go to death. What gave him hope? What gave him persistence? What helped him to press forward in that situation was remembering that it was God who was in the manger. Is this how you think of Advent? Is this how you think of Christmas? Within all the fun celebrations of lights and food and giving gifts, do you see all of this through the lens that it is God who is in the manger? It was God who was in that manger that night that he was born. And what is commemorated in every nativity scene is that God was in the manger. 
that God loves to fulfill his eternal purposes through what seems to be small, what seems to be insignificant, what seems to be weak, what seems to be utterly and completely helpless and needy. Is there any greater image of what is small and weak and needy than a newborn infant? Is there any greater image that God could give us about why it is wrong to fear feeling small than in knowing that he is constraining everything, all of creation, all of history towards the new heavens and the new earth. And he does this through what looks small and weak and helpless and needy. This is what God is doing in everything. And he has given us a picture of that by not just coming in the flesh, but coming as a baby. Beloved, God was in the manger. And what that means for us is that it was in God coming in flesh coming in weakness, coming as a baby, coming to a family that was poor, a family that seemed to be insignificant, even though they were part of the lineage of David. That God took that situation, and that's what he chose as being the means by which he would fulfill the eternal heart's desire that he has in having a people for his treasured possession. Last week, we looked at this theme as it specifically applies to the elders in the church. Because what the elders are called to do in Christ's church is represent him to Christ's church. They are to embody Christ to his church. Peter uses the phrase, example. But it could just as well be translated embody. Because what is an example? It is something physical. It is something tangible. It is something that you can see and touch. It is something that you can hear. So that you know that Christ is ruling and that he does so lovingly and with great mercy. He is the one who came in his first advent in humility, who embodied humility, who led his people humbly. This is what we are to see in the ministry of the elders. But what Peter reminds us of this morning is not only is this to be embodied by the elders, the reason that should be embodied in the elders is because it is to be embodied in all of us. The humility of the advent, as it is embodied in the humility of the leadership, is to be embodied in the followers. You see, as I said from the first Sunday of Advent, the servant is not greater than the master. And the master gave up his glory for a time 
in order to love you and me. The elders, what it means to be an elder is that you give up earthly glory for a time in order to manifest that humility to Christ's people. How else will people know that their Savior was humble than if they see it in the leadership? But how else, beloved, will those who are outside the walls of the church who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, how else will they know that he came in humility? How else will they know that he is described as the one who would not break a bruised reed? How else will they know that he is loving and that he is kind and that he is merciful? How else will they know that humility is the path to glory? It's not going to be through your words. Now, your words are helpful. But if you speak of a kind, merciful, humble Savior, but your life is marked by arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency, if you manifest your devotion to Christ as a self-made American, then the two messages start getting confused. Peter here knows that he's writing to people who are suffering, who are struggling. And he calls them in the midst of this to humble themselves. Take on the life and characteristics of your Savior. Is there anyone that might understand this temptation towards being a self-made man or being self-sufficient in his own strength or being a, a shepherd of himself more than Peter? Is that not what we see of Peter throughout the Gospels? That this was one who was assured. This was one who thought he was so strong Waves are crashing all around the boat. I'll jump out. And for a moment he was. But then he sank. The night before our Savior was betrayed as they were at the first Lord's Supper, Jesus tells Peter, tonight you are going to betray me. Now, he says that to all the disciples. Do you remember what Peter says? It's not, well, I won't, right? That in and of itself, you know, would have been, sound a little bit of okay, right? But that's not what he says. All these others might, but I won't. Do you see the arrogance? Do you see the self-assuredness? That as he compared himself to the other disciples, he was willing to contradict the words of his Savior in that moment in comparison to others because he was so self-assured. Beloved, within the church of Jesus Christ, there is no greater potential 
for a church to be ripped to shreds than when people live in the arrogance of self-sufficiency. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Church is not something that I need. Church is something that I bless. Peter anticipating the struggles that come to a church who are in the midst of struggle and suffering points them to the, one of the greatest potential problems that they will have, and that is to try to endure in and of their own strength, to try to endure in and of their own plans, in and of, in, in and of their, their own sufficiency. So he tells them to humble yourselves. Subject, right? It's the exact same word that he used back in 1 Peter 2 when telling us to subject ourselves to government. He says, subject yourselves to the elders. Now, just as I said back then, I'm going to say today, this is a voluntary submission, and it is a voluntary submission insofar as the elders present the truth of God in the scripture. Moments from now, when we receive some new members, you're going to hear them make a promise to subject themselves to the elders. And what I told them, and what I'm reminding you of today, that does not mean that the elders get carte blanche. It doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that we get to say whatever we want. It doesn't mean that we get to require whatever we want. We are limited by the will of God as it has been revealed in Scripture. And the only calling that we have is to put Scripture before you. Insofar as we put God's truth before you, you are to submit. You are to voluntarily give yourself. But one of the unique things about being Reformed is that we are the only denomination in our confessional documents that include that doctrine of liberty of conscience. We are the only major denomination that I'm aware of that have historical roots, that have confessional roots, in which the confession itself says this, no one can take your, your conscience captive other than Jesus. And so that means you are to protect your conscience, and it means that others are to protect your conscience. It means us, he, we, within the church, we are not supposed to be binding each other's consciences where the word of God hasn't. It means that we promote the word of God to one another, and we promote the freedom of Christ to one another. We don't come at each other with our own pet ideas or our own pet plans or our own little uh, 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 stumps that we want to grind. We come to one another through the word of God and only through the word of God. Now, you may have a good idea that doesn't come from Scripture. That doesn't mean you don't share it. It means you make sure that you understand that this may just be a good idea for me. And so I humbly present it as something to be considered. We go off track. The humility within the church is so vital, not only as this witness to the world 
and as a witness to one another. Look what the text tells us. God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but that's not one of those verses I like to read to myself over and over and over in my devotional time. And it's because I am proud. But notice, it is very clear. God opposes the proud. Now, this doesn't mean that you lose your salvation if you're prideful. What this means is that when you are seeking to follow Christ and to be a member of his church, and you're doing so through your own self-sufficiency, through your own self-shepherding, through thinking that you know better and you're bringing all this to the table, when you do this, you're going to run into a wall. And you're going to run into a wall over and over and over. But at the same time, notice the second part of the phrase. Not only does God oppose the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How many of us, out of a true love for Christ's church, when we see that there are struggles going on, think, all right, well, the path for me to help in this situation is to humble myself, to give up some sense of glory, to give up some sense of self-importance, to give up trying to get my needs fulfilled so that I can serve the needs of others. Is that the normal path? Is that what normally happens in a church? When you know a church is starting to be ripped apart from the inside, it's because of people giving up too much of themselves? No. It is the exact opposite. And it is especially, it is especially satanic, Peter tells us, when this happens because we think we are doing something for the good of the church. Notice that what Peter says here. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Watch out. Because, the, because Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now why would he say this? He says this because of what he himself experienced in his own discipleship. Remember when Jesus tells the disciples, the Son of Man has come, and his purpose is to suffer, his purpose is to be rejected, and his purpose is to be crucified. Do you remember what Peter said? Once again, trying to sound wonderful, trying to sound like he really loves Jesus, right? What does he say? No, no, that's not for you. You you, you haven't come to suffer and to die. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. There is nothing more satanic than a member of the church or a church body thinking that somehow we can live an existence apart from suffering and struggle 
as the church of Jesus Christ within this world. And so I'm going to take my own self-sufficiency, my brilliance, my resources, and I'm going to fix everything. You see, on that night before our Savior was betrayed, not only, uh, or what, what he told Peter that night, not only did Peter say, hey, everyone else may fall away, but I won't, what led up to that was Jesus telling Peter, hey, Peter, guess what? Satan has asked for you because he longs to sift you. See, this connection between humility, opposition to God, and the problems that that work out within the church that are satanic, it is all something that Peter himself experienced in his own discipleship that he had to learn the difficult way. And that was by putting his foot in his mouth over and over and over and having that recorded for all of us. Aren't you glad that all of your putting your foot in your mouth is not recorded for everybody? But this is why humility, as it is one of the paramount characteristics of the Advent, has to be a paramount characteristic of the leadership of the church so that it becomes a paramount characteristic of the church. You and I live in a culture that does not value this. We value strength. We value power. We value influence. We value all of these different things. We value pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and getting it done. And guess what? There is nothing wrong with those things if they are approached appropriately under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, within this church... There is absolutely no place for pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And within this church, there is absolutely no place for coming in and trying to exert power and influence because you think there is a better way. There could be a better way. But what Peter is admonishing us today is pursue what you think may be a better way through humility, not through the power of the will. Beloved, our Savior has come. And that first coming was marked by a humility that is unimaginable for you and me, and yet is expressed to us that we focus on annually. But that second coming is also the hope that we have in Christ, where we are told that there is nothing that we can give up within this world that we will not receive better in the world to come. There is nothing that you can give up in humility within this life that you won't receive a thousandfold in the life to come. And that is because the story of Christmas is the story of a Savior who came in humility and through his humility was re-exalted to the right hand of the Father. 
And beloved, when you and I find ourselves and our lives hidden within that story, our humility is also leading to the same place. You see, humility and glory are not opposed to one another. Because in Christ, it is humility that is the path to glory. You can choose earthly glory, and you can try to get that through your own power and ingenuity, through your own self-made man uh, self, your own self-sufficiency. But what you will get is an earthly glory that will fade, that will rust, that will disappear. Peter told us that back in 1 Peter 1. But the hope of those who have been born again in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that when our Savior returns, that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know what that means? You don't have to do those for yourself. He is going to gift them to you when he returns. Until that day comes, let our lives, our devotion, our church life, your membership in the church, may it all be characterized by the hope of the two advents of Jesus Christ, the hope of humility that leads to glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have not left us to ourselves. We attempted to shepherd ourselves in the garden. We had received your word, your instructions, and then we received some different words and different instructions from, the, from Satan. We sided with Satan. We thought we could know better. And so from the very beginning, we plunged ourselves, Lord, into sin and misery. And yet you were not done giving us your word because you gave promises and then you embodied those promises in your son. And so help us as a church to keep the image of the baby in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to embrace that baby as God himself who has come in flesh. And help us to be so identified in the story of our Savior that we would come to be characterized more and more and more by his ethic. An ethic of giving. An ethic of making others more important than himself. And an ethic of service. An ethic of being last. An ethic in which he, empowered by your spirit, relied upon you for everything that he did and for everything he accomplished. Father, may that not only be true of our Savior, and may it not only be true of our stated theology, but may it be true of our very lives. And so help us, Lord, to embrace the suffering of discipleship in Jesus Christ with the hope of glory and with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit just as our Savior did. And use this, Lord, that we might be a blessing to one another within your church, 
Protect us from feeling self-sufficient. Protect us from thinking that we have some idea that um, has to be enacted through power or influence or uh, by working behind the scenes. Father, help us to see that that is satanic. It's not just bad. It's not just unwise. It is satanic. And Father, impress that upon us so that we would give ourselves to you and to your methods in your church. And Father, encourage us to be a people of prayer because of this, knowing that not only do we struggle with these temptations, but every believer and every true church around this globe is struggling with the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we pray, Lord, not only for ourselves, but we pray for those who are around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whose cultures may bring to them different and various temptations, yet temptations nonetheless. And we pray for your servants who are ministering as missionaries in foreign nations. We ask you, Lord, that you would protect them from taking our culture into those places and that you would protect them from the world in which they are seeking to minister, and you would protect them from the flesh. And Father, bless their service to you. Bless their proclamation of the good news, and bless their embodiment of a humbled Christ. And Father, we pray that we would be this kind of church in the world here within where you have us, because the world in which we are living right now has so given itself over to the will of power. It has so given itself over to the use of personal strength, the use of personal ideas, even to the point of lying and deceiving in order to get power, to keep power, and to exercise that power over others. And Lord, because of this, our land right now is hurting. There is still confusion that has come from the elections. Help us, Lord, not to be participants in the chaos, but to be the manifestation of Jesus Christ, who spoke to the winds and made them become peaceful. May we who have received that peace in Christ be agents of that peace. And Lord, that is not easy because that will require us to humble ourselves politically and to entrust ourselves to your providence. And so Lord, bless us with the Christ of the manger, with the Christ of the cross, with the Christ of the resurrection, with the Christ that is in glory at your right hand, that we in Christ may have received all of these things. For we pray this ever and always through his perfect mediation. In Jesus' name we pray.